Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, the league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you have not already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Shoot us any questions, comments, feedback over on IndieCornrows.com or on Twitter as well. I'm joined by my good host, good, geez, good host. You are a good host. My good friend, colleague, and co-host, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I have no memories of anything that happened last night, Mark. Was there a game? Uh, yeah, I watched Texas Tech and Duke play. As far as I'm concerned, that's the only game that happened uh, during that time slot last night. So I, I don't think there was a game. No, I, I just feel like a few hours of my life have just disappeared. So who knows? Yeah. Who knows what went on? You just uh, the, the little like Matrix flashlight thing or not Matrix. No, it's uh, it's Men in Black, right? Yeah, Men in Black where they, they as you know, bad at analogies. Uh, moving on. I have a game that we're going to start off with before we get into talking about the Pacers um, because you you made this aware to me yesterday that there is a maple syrup Pepsi that is coming out soon, um, which first let's talk about that. What was your first thought when you saw this thing from Pepsi? Uh, because I had a lot of thoughts as soon as it hit. I had a lot of thoughts as well. I mean, I think that for one, we must be talking about, um, blended sodas and other beverages too often because that was the ad that was on my Twitter feed. And <laughs> yeah. also it, it popped up during the lost two hours of my life last night. So it didn't exactly make those two hours better because I was just very confused and I immediately had to text you about this new beverage. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my first thought was, well, I hope it's not as thick as maple syrup. Um, I'm sure it's not, but like, wouldn't that just be weird to taste something that's maple syrup, but it's not the thickness of maple syrup? Like, isn't that that's just doing some kind of odd food physics shenanigans that I don't know what to make of? Um, I also just think like Pepsi's already too sweet. So we're making a maple syrup flavor now, which is even sweeter than Pepsi. Um, I don't know. There's a there's a lot going on there. Uh, here is my my game for you. I'm going to ask you, is this real? for nine flavors of Pepsi and you're going to answer yes or no. And I'll tell you if you're correct. Okay. Um, are you ready? I'm, I'm ready, but I'm a little bit scared. Okay. All right. Pepsi mango. Not real. That is real. It is a, uh, is currently sold around the country and in, in the world in general, that is a real variety of Pepsi. I reject that. I reject that because just to interrupt the game, do you realize that the, the maple Pepsi is in partnership with IHOP? And when you look into it, they're not selling the maple Pepsi anywhere, not even at IHOP, strangely enough. You have to like take a picture of your pancakes at IHOP, tweet them, and you might get a chance to be mailed a limited edition maple Pepsi. So I don't even believe that this mango Pepsi exists. It's probably some promotion. Okay, here is, uh, I, I promise you, I've looked this up, okay? So I've looked it up on the official Pepsi website. It was first sold as a limited edition variety in spring of 2019, but it is now a permanent release that you can buy in stores. 
Wow. I've never seen that. I've never I, seen that. I agree too, but it's a real thing. Some of these we're gonna we're gonna fudge a little bit, but yes. Um Pepsi holiday spice. I think that's real. Unfortunately, real. Yes. Uh I kind of imagine it's gotta be like that like cinnamon gum, just like there's no point in having it. It's it's kind of terrifying, but it is a uh, a cinnamon scented scent not scent well, I mean scented, yes, but cinnamon hinted pepsi which i just uh no, no. i think that's a little bit uh that's important to me uh big, big red the drink i don't think so yeah uh that was the thing in 2004 in canada and the u.s uh eight week long christmas variety and sold again during the 2006 holiday season um considered somewhat similar to the swedish julmust i probably just pronounced that wrong but uh the more you know uh pepsi blood orange that's real that's real. That is not real. It isn't. It is not real. But I'm so happy a... with myself for getting that. that. No, there's, there's, there's never been a Pepsi Blood Orange. Has there ever been a Pepsi Orange? Uh, that I do not know. There may have been a. Pepsi I feel orange. like there was, or there was a Coke Orange, or Orange Coke Orange Cream, or I think I don't there was know. a Coke Orange. I'm yeah. actually more interested in Blood Orange Pepsi than the other varieties we've heard See? so far. So. That's what I, that's what I'm saying. All right, uh, Pepsi pineapple. No, that is real. What is happening here? It's a Walmart exclusive. <laughs> I've never seen that at Walmart in my life. Where I don't go Walmarts to Walmart. Uh, I, like, I, I, yeah, I, a Walmart I exclusive in Hawaii. Like, where <laughs> it just says limited edition released in spring 2019, available exclusively at Walmart stores. Um, so yeah, the, again, the more you know. Um, Pepsi salted caramel. I'm hoping not. It was real. Uh, it was sold from November 2017 to the end of the year for the holiday season. Uh, that's disgusting. Um, Pepsi cappuccino. No. It's real. <laughs> so, but, but, but the Coke with coffee, everyone's been acting like is a new thing when in reality, this already existed at one point in time. Yeah, this was a, a coffee flavor variant sold in Russia, Romania, and other various parts of Europe during the 2000s. It was known as Pepsi, Pepsi Cafe Chino. So you're, you're expecting me to know European Pepsi variety? Hey, we have, we have some very dish quality, so you never know. Um, Okay. Pepsi Kiwi Guava Twist. I'm intrigued, so I hope this one's real. It's not real. <laughs> nope. See, the ones you're coming up with are better. Than, <laughs> I, I, think, know, right? I think you should work for the Pepsi Corporation. I, I couldn't do that to myself. Uh, just a couple more. Uh, Pepsi Hot Chocolate. Please no. It's <laughs> real. It's still a thing. Uh Pepsi with hot chocolate flavoring, given out as a limited edition to people who, are, who participated on National Hot Chocolate Day uh, using their special hashtag thing. Only 2,000 cans of this flavor are known to exist. The soda is said to taste like the classic American chocolate cola, but with a mild licorice taste. Do why you want to taste mild that? licorice taste? Exactly. Like, why is what? What is? How is that like hot chocolate at all? Why do I want that? I don't want that. Um, I mean, in retrospect, that one might not be bad because have you ever had like Coca-Cola cake? 
were. Oh yeah, okay, that's like fair. like it, it might it might be. But okay, then if but you're like, drinking something that tastes like that, I don't know. I, I don't know, but that's I don't. Where I, you lose me? That licorice one's a a, a mean trick. I don't. I, know. I, I that's I'm right there with you. Uh, all right, last one. Pepsi mojito. No. It's real. Oh my gosh. An alcohol-free lemon mint variant sold in Italy as a limited edition for the summer of 2009. Um, wow. If I just remembered that from the many trips I've spent in Italy <laughs> looking for Pepsi varieties. Well, uh, now I that think, we are through that. Well, which, which was better, though, Mark? My performance on that or the Pacers in crunch time? Ooh. Uh, I don't know. Did you dribble the ball out of bounds when you are getting pressed? Probably about equal in record, I would guess. <laughs> yes, uh, maybe better even. Uh, I think I, I tweeted it out at the end of the Kings game. Um, the Pacers just got curb stomped by the, the net rating guys for the 35th time this season. So I do have to say, like, as much as the, the, one of my biggest pet peeves this year, just in basketball in general, has been um, the use of shot variance and uh, crunch time stats to – discredit things that are actually happening on court not discrediting is maybe the wrong word but like instead of noting hey your team is doing dumb shit like oh it's just it's just not rating it's just shot very it's like no man there's a there's good defense happening b there are some really bad offense things happening <laughs> like there's i understand the importance we've talked about this before the importance of like you know noting that shot variance is a real thing on open shots um but also you just can't make up some of the things that do happen for this team in crunch time. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, going clear back to the season, I talked about how many times they've found themselves under falling pianos. Like there is certain things as bad luck, that's, but then that's there's a much also, better analogy than I've ever come up with. Like there is a such thing as bad luck, but there's also such a thing as making your own luck. And there's yeah. times where, you know, I don't know why Tyrese Halliburton's in batting the ball in that type of a situation instead of handling it. But um, yeah, I agree with you. I think that it's perfectly fine to question things that happen in crunch time without just like, well, in the last five minutes of games, they have a great clutch record and, and that's luck or it isn't like, I don't know. I think that there's more nuance to it than that, but you know, that's, that's, that's our podcast niche. So yes, 100%. All right. Well today, now that we're, uh, we're clear and ready to talk Pacers, um, the Pacers have eight games remaining. In the in the 2021-22 NBA season, mercifully, this season is coming to an end. Um, we are going to talk about eight things that we are looking forward to or keeping an eye out for uh, as the season closes. Um, so we're going to go back and forth for between each of us. Caitlin, do you want to start? Yeah, eight games left, eight storylines. We each picked four. I'm hoping that there aren't a bunch of overlap between yep. the storylines that we picked. I do have a few spares, so hopefully we're prepared. Um, my first one, people will know from past podcasts, but it still matters to me. Um, hopefully Isaiah Jackson starts feeling better with the headaches that he's been dealing with after having a concussion. Um, if he does and he is available to play in the near future, my number one question and thing that I want to see and want to evaluate if they do do it is will he play any minutes at the four? Will he be out there and not just, you know, out there in minutes with Jalen Smith or whoever else is, but actually defending as the four and not always guarding at the center spot, not always switching out and seeing what he can do in those spots. Because it's like I said on the last podcast, if they plan on retaining Miles Turner at least through the duration of his contract, I think it would be valuable. Even if you still see that you're going to 
you know, have Isaiah Jackson play back up five behind him. If they are going to play some minutes together, I think it would be worthwhile to at least get a tiny peek at what he can do at the four spot, even if offensively you're still using him predominantly at the, as the screener, like what they do with Jalen when Jalen plays, you know, more as the spacer with Isaiah involved in the action. So over these last eight, that's something that I'm going to be keeping a close eye on because, I mean, I didn't look up the numbers and, and sometimes the numbers aren't even going to be that helpful because it's not going to tell you who is guarding who or what matchups were there. But I mean, really off the top of my head, the only time I can remember seeing even a slight hint of that was when they were in garbage time down in Orlando and they played Terry Taylor, Isaiah Jackson, and Goga together. Like that's, that's the only time I've seen Isaiah Jackson do most of that. So um, that's my number one. Okay. Yeah. I, one thing I wanted to ask you about that too, because I was thinking about this as well this morning when I was getting my notes together, how have you felt about Isaiah Jackson shooting or not shooting from, from outside? Because I think one of the things that we've talked about a lot that I I always appreciate the point you make um, if we're debating whether or not somebody is a four or five, they're probably a five and um, not that shooting is end all be all, but I do think, you know, if you're looking at the, the idea of Isaiah Jackson is more of a four. It's probably coming with him being, uh, you know, not just somebody who's shooting well from deep, but somebody who's shooting without hesitancy and, you know, being put in a position to do that. And I do think there's been a lot of hesitancy from him to take shots, you know, as the season's gone on. So I'm wondering where you're at with that. Yeah. I mean, I think there's sometimes where they might flow into delay where he has mm-hmm. the ball up top and instead of immediately like actually going into the handoff quickly, he might glitch a little bit. Like, do I want to take this shot or, you know, do I want to put the ball on the floor and get it going the other way? I mean, we talked about in the Clippers game, obviously he had a career night played very well, but you know, there was the moment against LA zone where he and Serge Ibaka kind of stared each other down before he was finally like, okay, I have six feet of space. I'm going to shoot. Um, The one thing that's interesting is when they're out there and they run so many different, you know, two man screening actions, whether it's a double drag or, you know, Um, just a double ball screen in the half court, almost everyone else, but Isaiah Jackson can roll or pop, or they use them to either roll or pop. And that was the little thing, the little blurb that I had about Terry Taylor, um, is in minutes when he's out there sometimes with Goga or Isaiah Jackson, there's occasions where if he's the second screener, he will pop and, you know, either he shoots it like here lately, he's, he's shot more threes. I think he took four last night against Memphis or he'll put the ball on the floor. And then that just creates a little bit more variability for the defense when you don't know which big's going to do what. And I understand why they're pretty much exclusively rolling Isaiah because he obviously has the vertical gravity that he does and, and, and backside defenders are going to pull over and that's going to open stuff up more than what the other options are. But I mean, in terms of what Miles is kind of on the record indicating that he doesn't necessarily want to just be in the corner or just playing outside the action, if the two of them are going to play together more, what you're saying is accurate and that you'd like to see there be a little bit more versatility there than what you can do. Because like in contrast to playing Turner and Sabonis together, Sabonis is obviously a lot more polished than Isaiah Jackson and, and has ways to get around what his three-point shooting was, even though, like, he did make some threes this year, just not at a high clip. So, in that regard, yes. But I don't really think that if the two of them are playing together, 
that he's going to be functioning as a four offensively much anyways. Like, I don't, I don't think you're going to see a lot of Isaiah Jackson space to the corner if he's playing with Jalen Smith and Miles Turner, because they're not doing it now. Like they're spacing Jalen to the corner. They're spacing, you know, I think that's probably the best comparison in terms of what Jalen's overall skill set is. Now, I do think that there's other ways. Like I shared a clip a couple games ago where I've been waiting like all year to see if they were going to run this play because they do it with Dwight Powell in Dallas, where basically Dwight Powell is at the corner. A guard cuts off of him in what you would call chin action, cuts to the basket behind. And then Dwight Powell flips around and immediately flows into a wide pin down, which he effectively ghosts and then catches a lob. That doesn't involve him being a ball screener at all. Like he's just off off the action and Luca would hit him with a lob in that play. They did that with Jalen Smith and I forget what game it was. It turned into a post up for him because he's not going to be as fluid turning and, and getting up as what you could do with Dwight Powell or Isaiah Jackson. But I do think that there are certain ways that if he and Miles are playing together, you could still use Isaiah Jackson as a lob threat to crash from the corners, even if he's not necessarily shooting it. But yeah, I mean, I don't think that the three point shooting has really been there aside from the five that he drained against, you know, in the G League game where he had a little bit more confidence letting shots go. But I think it would be more a case of what I said, that offensively he would be playing more what you would traditionally think a five man would do. And defensively, you could be taking advantage of his ground coverage out on the perimeter. And even even if it's not with another big, it's like I've said before, if you're willing to cross match it with Goga and O'Shea. And in tiny spots at the end of games or with Sabonis prior to let O'Shea guard the five so that you can switch and, and have that guy as a help defender. I don't really understand why you wouldn't be willing to get a peek of that with Isaiah Jackson when he's going to be a lot better at sliding over. And, and once he grows in his knowledge of when to do that, when to help. So um, I guess that's how I would answer that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I'm there with you. And I think that kind of flows into my first question and it's, Will Miles Turner play um, to, at, at all in the last eight games? And we don't really have a concrete answer on that. I'm not sure when or if we will get one, but I, I think you and I lean in the same direction of even if they're not going, I mean, yeah, no, they're not going to play in or anything like that. But I, I want to see Miles play, frankly, just so we can get a better idea of, okay, what does, well, I should say play if he's able to. Like, I don't want him to rush back or anything, right. you know, um, that's, I, I mean, that's a given, but um, we've talked about this front court so much, and I know we're going to have even more to talk about with the front court um, in our storylines. I know I do, but I just feel like with how much everything's already been in, up in the air and kind of uncertain, I want to see, okay, what, what can, like you mentioned a little bit with Isaiah, like, can he play at the four? But it's, to me, it's, it's even less about playing him at the four, more just like, what does he look like playing with Miles? Because we just really yeah. haven't gotten to see that much this year. Yeah, and I kind of question too. I mean, I agree. After after the All-Star break, I thought there might – I mean, I had no information on this. I was just making assumptions based on what they had said, the original timeline, what the stress reaction was, and what you know other national reporters had indicated that there was a possibility that if there had been a trade or even if there hadn't, that he might be available at the beginning of March. Clearly that – took a little bit longer and he doesn't hasn't fully ramped up yet. I know that they had shown that he had returned at least to doing some things at practice. I don't know if he was fully involved in five on five or exactly what that was, but my kind of outside assumption is now that Malcolm Brogdon has sat three games where the box score just says rest when like last night it was a back-to-back, but he didn't play in the first half of the back-to-back and he didn't play against Portland either. Given that 
I mean, I don't know. I don't know what his status is going to be moving forward or why exactly, you know, he's out for rest. I haven't seen any updates on that. If I, if there have been, I apologize that I, I didn't come prepared to see what that was prior to the pod. But given that that's how they're using him and that TJ McConnell doesn't necessarily seem like he's being, I don't want to say rushed, but, you know, on the fast track to return either, I kind of question if, if Miles will play. Yeah. Again, I kind of doubt it with only eight games left and given that he would probably be somewhat rusty when he comes back. But if he had been ready after the all-star break, I agree with you that I would have valued seeing those minutes and seeing it against some of the better opponents because they still have several, you know, tough opponents left on the schedule um, when they came back from that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I value having as much information as possible heading into what's going to be a very crucial off season for the Pacers beyond the draft. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, what is your next storyline? My next one is, we'll just keep on going with the front court is it, if miles doesn't come back and among the other centers slash fours who are available, Will we see a like will a clear pecking order come to the top? And I'm not saying like from the coaching staff or the Pacers themselves, but from us watching, are we going to be able to see like that's what the depth chart at center would be? Like if obviously you're penciling Miles Turner in is and not even just penciling, he is your starting five if he remains on the roster after this summer. Who's behind him? Like I, I think that we can still, you know, especially because they have games left against Denver, games left against Philadelphia. I mean, I don't know what the Sixers will be in the seeding standings by then and whether Embiid will actually play. But to this point, other than when Clearback, when they played in New Orleans and had to deal with Jonas Valanciunas and a little bit against Wendell Carter Jr., they haven't exactly played a lot of um, imposing low post threats. I mean, Sabonis didn't play the other night. Wait, hold so, on a second. You're not going to consider Damian Jones and Shemezi Metsu imposing post threats? Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's the valid point, though. Like, literally, that's yeah, the valid I point. I know, yeah. Because, you know, who who on this team is going to be able to handle that type of physicality? I think the physicality alone probably could have been a storyline over the back end of the season and what they're going to have to do to remedy some of that. But I don't know completely at this point. Like, obviously, Goga's on a hot streak in terms of his conversion rate at the field. I know from the field, I know that there's been some discussion about, you know, against the Kings, he had 20 points and then he didn't play the last three minutes. And, you know, what ended up happening at Houston when he took a little bit of time out, but generally, or even against Cleveland when he didn't play again after he had that um, screw up against Darius Garland on the switch. Generally, you can point to a concrete reason why he's coming out of the game. And I understand the logic that like, okay, these games don't matter. Let him have those reps, but it's like, the other night against Sacramento, is it not important for Terry Taylor to get reps? Like they ended up going with Terry Taylor and O'Shea because they wanted to do more switching because they couldn't ha- handle Mitchell. Um, they couldn't keep him in front. So they wanted to try to switch it. And as it turned out, he ended up like banging in a step back against Terry Taylor on the switch. But point being is like, there's other young guys who need minutes too. And if they thought that that's what was going to make them more competitive, I'm not sure I'm going to completely argue with it. It just seems that like on the Goga front, I think that there have been a few things over these last like six games that I think you can tangibly point to that look better than what was the case um, in the immediacy post all-star break when it seemed like his stock was like lower than ever. And some especially on the two game Orlando stint, but 
I'm not sure he offers you the same amount of positional versatility. And you and I have talked about it before, like not necessarily seeing Jalen as a four, um, especially from his time in Phoenix and, and probably still seeing him somewhat more as a five. But the point is, is that depending upon who else they keep, there's just a lot more things you could do with Terry Taylor and Jalen in terms of emergency depth and who that they can match with than what's necessarily the case with Goga. Like, I don't see you playing, you know, Goga with another center necessarily. I mean, we already did see that. They tried it for how many games at the beginning of the season, um, which feels like another lifetime ago that they were running out life. Like literally, like sometimes when I look back at some of these early games, it's like, that was a thing that happened. Like TJ McConnell, Karis LeVert, Goga, and Sabonis was a legitimate four-man combination for a fairly long stretch of the season. And I didn't really need to see more of that. So, um, and despite the fact that of, of the bigs that they've had this season, those are the two best passers. So I guess my point being is over the last eight, I would like to, when the season is over, feel strongly, you know, that's who should be, who they should want to retain when the summer comes. Because when I was on real GM with Daniel LaRoe last week, I asked him about Jalen's contract situation. And if he thought it was reasonable that the Pacers could retain him. And he said, yes, people can go listen to that and hear his explanation. But essentially what his point was, is that in a lot of cases like this, a player and their agent are going to prioritize what the opportunity might be. So if he thinks that there's going to be opportunity, depending upon what bigs the Pacers keep on the roster, he and his agent might decide it's best for you to stay in Indiana. Um, you've been producing well there and we'll re-enter free, free agency in a year. And then you might get a better contract after a year of putting this together in a place where you're going to get playing time. So he didn't seem to think that there was going to be, you know, a lot of competitive offers where, like I said, he thinks it's going to be more about opportunity than anything. So people can listen to that segment, but I don't think that alone will necessarily um shape what decision they make yeah um no that's a, that's a good point um i'm interested to see too just because i was looking through yesterday and the, the the big man free agency class is pretty dry this year so i am interested to see how that works out um i know danny knows the cap and, and free agency a lot better than me though so i would, I would definitely trust his word on that i'm just it's again like you mentioned it's just so uh confusing and interesting to look at and i think that that plays into my next question i mean you you hit on gogo a little bit too obviously he's played really well recently production wise i do think like some of the stuff has been better too like i feel like uh he hasn't been dipping the ball down as much when he's going to the rim um you know obviously the shot's been falling he's just factored pretty well into the offense um but even then like you mentioned like terry taylor has been playing really well still. Like, he was good in the sack game. Um, and I, I I don't know. I don't want to – I know that he wasn't drafted by the Pacers. Um, but, like, to me, I view Terry as, like, a very real part of, of somebody who could be part of the younger foundation group. I mean, he's 22 years old, same as Goga. Um, I mean, I'd argue right now that he is a better player than Goga. Um, and that's not meant as shade. Like, I just think he's been that good. Um, I, I mean, where, do, how do you even prioritize what the front court options are? I think, again, like I said, a lot of it's going to be the front court, but that's just kind of where the questions are up in the air. And I, I mean, he doesn't have a contract yet for next year, if I remember correctly. Like, he doesn't have anything guaranteed for next year. Um, I think the Pacers should offer him a contract, frankly, but, um, you know, I remains to be seen whether or not that's going to happen. Um, so, 
I know it's not necessarily entirely a question, but my, I mean, my storyline is what, what does happen with Terry? Cause I do think he's shown an ability to actually factor in and, and you know, regardless of what role they put him in uh, minutes wise, I should say. Um, so yeah, I'm interested to see how that plays out because I do, uh, I, I, I think he should be viewed in kind of the same way as somebody like Gogo or Jalen in terms of having, um, you know, being somebody who can contribute and, and maybe has some upside still as a younger guy on the back end of the roster. Yeah, I mean, Terry in the game that shall not be named from last night <laughs> was one of few, like few redeemable uh, yeah. elements. I mean, Lance hit like four threes and got on a little bit of a heater in the fourth quarter. But aside from that, it was basically Terry Taylor. Um, he continues to impress me with how quickly he gets out of picks and, and can slip. That actually pairs very nicely with Buddy Heald because people usually will put you know, they're going to play higher against him because of the threat of his shooting, even though he hasn't shot the ball particularly well from deep with the Pacers since the trade um, overall, especially uh, with aside from the Kings game over the last however many games. But um, Buddy's really good at throwing overhead passes on slips. So when he's screening, when that's a screening combination, good things typically tend to happen. Obviously, Tyrese is, is good at that as well. Um I think that that's a valuable thing. Give you another option against the slip, especially, or I mean, against the switch, especially because they like what I said before, they just don't have a lot of physicality on this roster. I mean, there was two or three times again in the game that shall not be named where Gogo was um, attempting to catch the ball deep against Steven Adams. And once he caught it, it was like, Oh, that's a, that's a brick wall. And now I'm just stalling out and getting rid of this. And now it's an offensive reset and not in a competitive way where you would against like a post double team. It was, it was uh, very glitchy. So they don't really have an option to necessarily throw it in deep there a lot. And if you can do, you know, you can, you can slip ahead of when the team's switching, then that gives you another inside option. Um, obviously we know what Terry can do as an offensive rebounder. Um, I'd still like to see a little bit more of him in lineups where he's maybe defending against wings so I can get a better evaluation of that. I mean, they switch a lot. So sometimes we get to see him against guards and that hasn't necessarily fared a lot better. Like I said, they tried to do that when they took Goga out against the Kings and he had a couple problems against Davian, Davian Mitchell on the switch, but you could at least switch it. Um, I think that where I would lean and going back to last summer, it seemed like a lot of the buzzwords around the team were that they wanted. That's why I still think that they're going to want to do a lot of switching next year, because after the draft, they talked about, you know, having guys who could play multiple positions. And, you know, that applies to the NBA as a whole in the terms of positionalists and some of it being semantics. But when you have a guy like Terry Taylor versus, you know, what Goga is, and a lot of this, again, goes back to what their plan is with Miles Turner. But if you have Miles Turner and Isaiah Jackson's your backup five, potentially, I just think with Jalen and Terry, you, you have a few more plug and play options where, you know, if you do get a, in a pinch, they can do more things. So unless like the stuff that Goga's doing continues to hold over strongly over the last eight games, um, it would be tough for me to lean in an opposite direction there um, once the rest of the roster is available. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, I do think on the switching part, too, I'm just, because we've talked about this, but I'm just so interested to see what uh, they actually do defensively next year because I Sacramento game did not make me feel great about switching everything. Not that, uh, not that I've uh, felt good about it in general, but uh, I mean, the entire, I think, shit, like halfway through the second quarter, part of it was they were just shooting the lights out, but Sacramento was shooting 70% from the field, like 20 minutes into the game. 
and part of that was they were just find a find Tyrese Halliburton, force a switch, mid post touch, draw two, or score an easy basket. And like that's not on Tyrese. I mean that you're asking him to defend somebody who's six foot nine or six foot ten who has the capability to back him down. I mean it was just I don't know. I we've talked about it. I just I I need to I need to see a lot more from this defense in a, in a different context to actually feel uh, something positive about it. And that, that was actually, are we on to my next storyline or are we on yours? I think we're uh, on to your next storyline. Yeah, that that's what mine was going to be, is exactly how do they envision and what more we see over these next eight with the pieces that they have when they add back Miles and maybe Brogdon and maybe TJ Warren and whatever, whoever else, whoever they draft, is how do they fix what's going on defensively? And I think some of it you have to take with a grain of salt because I'm not, I'm not at all trying to imply that people aren't trying or, you know, that there is an effort, but when you're on a losing team with only eight games left to play and your defensive ratings already poor, and you really haven't had a chance to probably have a lot of practices since the all-star break and stuff isn't necessarily well-formed and composed. I, I think it can kind of be tough to fully gauge um, what the problems are at that end of the floor to a degree. I think to Tyrese's credit, I've actually been a little bit impressed with how much he's battled trying to front. But the problem is, is if you're going to do it, then you got to have a plan. Like, are you, are you just white coverage and you're, you're fronting and you're just going to try to have that guy hopping back forth from the, co- the corner? Or are you like going to do kind of what the Houston Rockets used to do when they were basically micro ball where you switch it and then you double from the backside and you're zoning up the weak side. Like, I don't think that it's always super well composed on what the plan is. And with the switching, like I said, in the past, I just have a hard time seeing you doing that when you're going to be displacing miles out onto the perimeter potentially against a guard and then if there's secondary actions between other players he's not going to be there to defend the rim and we already know what the defense looks like currently without him to there to defend the rim so i don't know i mean i I think that you can still switch one through four Mm -hmm. um and maybe against certain matchups he could do it but i mean there's still so many adjustments like i will say in the last several games I felt a little bit better about Goga defending at the level, not jumping up yeah. above, not deeping, dropping deep than the other things that I've seen from him. Um, he has been a little bit more active stabbing at the ball in those situations. And while they have gotten split, it's been better than just watching him back up to the stanchion without putting any pressure on the ball. And it's better also than watching him try to fully switch out. So I haven't mind that adjustment. And if, if, if he ends up being the big that they keep, because maybe Jalen's contract does go in another way and they decide like, yeah, we, we want to have Goga as another center option, then maybe that's something that you can do because miles can defend at the level. I mean, we've seen him do that too. So and then it becomes about the background rotations, but that's why I do think, you know, they, they face an array of different opponents. I mean, you got Toronto, all their length, you got Boston in the way that, you know, they obviously have lanky wings that have given them all kinds of trouble in the games that they've played so far other than when Tatum was cold in the last one. And then you got again, low post threats and we can see how they can rotate around that because I mean, so much of what we're seeing from these games, it's difficult to parse because we don't know who else is going to be on the roster and how things are going to shake out. But um, I mean, what you're saying about Tyrese is true. Like I do want to give him a little bit of a break because I know that he was listed as questionable before they even played that Kings game with back soreness. He was on the bench and had 
some sort of a device on him. And I just felt in the fourth quarter that he looked so straight up and down and stiff when he was trying to stay in front of Davian Mitchell. And, you know, he, he's already getting overwhelmed by, by guards in general, especially if the guard is stronger than him, he's going to need to add strength over the summer regardless. But I do think the back might've been somewhat of the problem. And then they play second night of a back-to-back. He was questionable again and went ahead and tried to play. And I thought more of that showed up, but if he's going to be your point of attack defender and you're going to be switching with the problems you brought up against Sacramento, I'm not sure exactly what the answer is going to be there. They're going to have to definitely do some tinkering, but I think over these last eight, even though the defense has looked as, as generally poor as it has, um, there's still going to be little things you can watch from other guys to see what might be viable. So yeah. that's my third storyline. Yes. Um, I like that one. Here's my next storyline. Uh, how many games do the Pacers win in their last state and do they win a game? Um, now when, when, when you say it like that, it sounds ultra unfair and trivial. Like this team is, they've not been good, but I think they're five and nine since the, uh, all-star break. Uh, so obviously not great, but it's not the worst of all time. Um, but let's just rattle off what their schedule is in order. They play Toronto who has been really good since the all-star break. And they've had trouble with throughout the year, um, regardless of who's on the roster, um, then they play Atlanta, who, again, they have had a lot of trouble with. Um, they had, a, I mean, obviously their last game was much closer, but still Trey Young was able to pick them apart. And then when they had to sell out to, to double the ball, um, that did not go well for them. Uh, then they play Denver, who's really good. And then they play Boston, who's been just about the best team in the NBA uh, over the last two months. And then they play Detroit, who's 7-8 and eight since the All-Star break. Uh, Cade Cunningham is going to probably be the best player in that game. Um, like, that's not an easy test. They play Philadelphia two times in a row and then they close out with Brooklyn. And then with Philadelphia and Brooklyn right now, the top four seeds in the East are separated by, I think, two games. So Philadelphia is not exactly in a position where they're just going to stop playing. Where, um, I mean, I imagine there's going to be some jockeying going on throughout. Uh, and now that Kyrie is playing for Brooklyn, which that's a, that's a whole other thing. Um, I mean, they're going to most likely be going full board the rest of the season to try and find their rhythm and, and identity as a team. So point being, like, there is not an easy game on the schedule looking out. Um, and that could be interesting for a number of reasons. Like, OK, does that push them higher up the tankathon standings, which could make some people happy? I don't know. It depends how you're looking at it. Um, regardless, I'm. I'm very curious to see what happens on the back end of this because this is a, it's not just going to be easy games. I'm glad that you brought this up because I think that it's important to look at. I think that they've won six games since the All-Star break, one of them being, you know, the lopsided win over Boston. And we talked a lot about that game in our in one of the recap pods. And um, while I give them credit because I do think that they they played well in that game, Boston also played really poorly. That was the end of an East Coast road trip for them. Um I know we talked about shot variance earlier, but it was definitely a factor in that one because the Pacers made a lot of contested threes in that game. The Celtics missed a lot of open ones. Tatum shot the ball pretty poorly in that game, and I don't really think it was necessarily about anything the Pacers were necessarily yeah. doing defensively. And to O'Shea's credit, like that's what you need to do to be able to crack some of what the Celtics do defensively. You need to have a four who's going to hit the three and it's going to move and cut and make them pay for the way that Robert Williams roams. 
but I don't know that I expect him to hit six threes again and score, you know, 27 or 30 points or whatever he ended up having in that particular game. So I think that like getting a measuring stick, because I, I, again, I don't know if Brogdon's going to play, is, is Brogdon playing anymore this season? I, I don't know. I guess, you know, TJ Warren's back home in North Carolina now. I mean, he wasn't going to play anyways, but like just what that approach is, like if, if some of the more of the veteran guys aren't going to be out there than what they had, because I mean, Brogdon did play in that game against Boston, at least they are playing up against tougher opponents. And when we watch them play these two games against Memphis, for instance, it kind of looked like the varsity versus the JV to an extent. And I don't mean that yeah. to sound super rude, but like if you went to a laboratory and we're like, let's create an opponent that will be a Titan against the current version of the Indiana Pacers. I think you would create the Memphis Grizzlies. I mean, you would create a very high transition frequency team. Um, one that's physical, one that can really, you know, go after the offensive glass. So the Pacers can't play in transition as much. And then as it turns out, you know, Memphis while three point shooting has been somewhat, you know, of an issue for them this season, particularly in the half court has shot the lights out of the ball in the two games against the Pacers. So, um, I think it, it paints what how what you're seeing of the team in a somewhat different light when they're up against better opponents. So not that I'm necessarily expecting them to win these games, but if everyone is available aside from Miles Turner and TJ Warren, then you have to ask yourself the question, like if just adding those guys back and whoever they draft, how much better would they be? So, I mean, just looking at those eight games, I'd like to know if any of those are back to back for their opponents. I'm not going to be able to sit here and filter through to see, but um, they already lost to Detroit here recently. That was a game they probably could have won. The offense got um, pretty stagnant late, but I mean, they needed, they needed Brogdon to be competitive in that one. Um, If they, if they come out against Atlanta and they have the legs to be trapping earlier and be doing some of the pressure that did slow down what the Hawks could do. If you're going to be yeah. face guarding Trey young, they don't have as many options to run offense through um, competently. If he doesn't have the ball because of the way that he plays and how much more, you know, heliocentric they are and the way that he just deactivates to an extent when he doesn't have the ball. So, you know, maybe they get that one, especially, you know, if, if they're shooting the ball well, because of what Atlanta's defense has been this season. Um, that seems possible. Plus it's at home. Um, and you hope the Detroit game. So, I mean, I guess two, maybe. Who is guarding Kevin Durant? <laughs> the last game of the season. I'm trying to remember who guarded Kevin Durant in the last time they played them. Well, I mean, I think it was I guess, Corey Craig, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess in the last time they played them, they were hedging everything and and yeah. then doing the big to big switch. So that's not a thing they're going to be doing anymore. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I have also, no idea. Justin Anderson, Durant. I guess. Justin yeah. Anderson, yeah, I guess. True. Newfound starter, uh, Justin Anderson. Um, but yeah, I mean, shout out Kevin Durant. Those passing's been really good lately. Um, like one of the best stretches of his career. Ball placement's still kind of all over the place, but he's getting through the ball a ton. It's been just fun to watch. Um, what is a uh, what is your last storyline? Well, this is funny because I actually had five here and now I'm going to be over eight, but I mean, both of them are kind of interesting, but I'm actually going to go with, will the transit, what will happen with the transition frequency by the time the season is over? Because just for context, 
when I wrote the story about um, how Tyrese was making the right pass and what the spacing was doing to make those reads easier and what he can do off of double drags, um, I made the point that a lot of times when you're running a double drag, that'll occur in semi-transition and how much he wants to get the ball and immediately race it up the floor. And like somewhat when we talk about pace, pace can mean a lot of things. It's not just about running fast or, you know, dribbling fast. It's also about what you do in the half court and, and what type of quick hitters you're running and what you're doing. And, and the Pacers, I think still are like 11th in pace since the trade deadline. But when you look at their actual transition frequency and how much they're playing in the open floor over those first four games, when Tyrese debuted before the all-star break, um, they were, I believe, 13th in the NBA in transition frequency. And just for context, going back to 2015-16, Rick Carlisle's teams in Dallas, and including this year on the whole, have have not ranked above 25th in transition frequency. It's just not been a factor of how they've played. So now since those four games, the Pacers, I mean, even including those games, their transition frequency of all their plays is 13.2%, which is 25th in the NBA. Prior to the trade deadline, their transition frequency was 13.3%, 27th in the NBA. So my point being is that's basically regressed back to where it was before the deadline. And I know that they put an emphasis on, you know, how quickly they want to get across half court. And again, pace can be different things. Just because you play a little bit later in the shot clock doesn't mean that you're not playing with speed in your actions and still forcing people to defend um, you playing quickly in the half court in terms of what your speed is. But it very much seems like you could see in that Kings game a couple of times how frustrated Tyrese gets when, you know, if Goga doesn't outlet him the ball quickly off a rebound or if guys don't get the ball and inbound it to him so that they can go the other way. That's clearly like what his default is and how he wants to play. And there's now a fairly large sample size. And again, it's different rosters, different teams in Dallas and what personnel you have that that hasn't been a factor of the way that Rick Carlisle coaches teams. So by the end of this season, after the Brooklyn game is done, that number is going to be somewhat meaningful to me because I think it shapes somewhat how you want to build the roster around Tyrese Halliburton. Is that something that's going to be a regular factor? Are they going to play in the open court a lot? Or is that not necessarily how Rick Carlisle is going to design things? Like I know he's talked that he wants them to play with pace and to play fast. It just hasn't really translated to an increase in open floor possessions. Yeah, no, that's definitely something to, to note and keep track of um, because it feels like some, well, not, not it feels like, I think it plays out on court. Like a lot of the best opportunities that are happening in offense uh, from Tyrese, or at least he, like you mentioned, it feels most like he's most comfortable in the open court. Part of that, yeah, it's definitely going to be a growing aspect for him. But like we talked about, like he does have some physical limitations and just limitations as a ball handler right now that make it harder for him to be a standstill creator 24 seven. So being able to really, uh, you know, uh, iron things out and uh, is going to be important. But having the transition to boy, what they're doing is is interesting. Um, so I agree. I'm very interested to see what happens with that. I know I just said interesting like six times, but uh, <laughs> it is uh, it's something to, to monitor for sure. Okay, so what's what's yours? Because I might still toss in the fifth one that I had because I had five in case we overlapped in some of the things that we picked. Yeah, I mean, this one is just, can we see more of Chris Duarte and Tyrese Halliburton together as the season closes out? I know part of it's been Duarte just unfortunately dealing with injury a lot over the last couple months, but um, they've only played 231 possessions together, according to Cleaning Glass, which is like a pretty negligible amount 
just comparing, you know, where you're at with everything else, like for, for reference, I mean, Tyrese and Buddy have played a thousand possessions together just in Indiana. So um, pretty sizable difference. Like I, I, I believe in their fit together, but I, I want to see more of it. You know, like I just want to see more of what these two guys who get talked about as, as important building blocks to the next uh, era is maybe the wrong way to put it, but like just, you know, they're going to be important for next year's team, their growth and what they can do over the off season. Um, so prepare for next year is going to be really important for what kind of leaps this team does take, I feel like. Um, so I'm just interested to see if we can see more of that over the final eight games, especially like we mentioned, I think that ties in with the schedule. Part of what's uh, cool about having a good schedule remaining or a difficult schedule remaining is that you get to kind of get tested by, by good teams and good defenses and see what that looks like. And uh, yeah, so I'm interested to see if we can see more of that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it goes back to the toe injury. I mean, clear yep. back when they were in Orlando, like I said, you could see him on the Orlando broadcast communicating to the training staff, motioning, like, when I run on straight lines, I'm fine. When I have to cut or, you know, motioning like a zigzag, that's when he was having pain. Um, if you interpret the sign language and then he didn't play after that and has been in and out and now has just been out. So I don't know exactly what the toe injury is, but I don't think that that's always something that you really want to mess with because then if you're running unevenly because the toe is bothering you, then maybe injuries go uphill and you end up having another issue. I mean, certainly if they say it's safe and okay, I am with you. I mean, I think when I wrote the article about, you know, one improvement area for each of them. Yeah. I mean, what you're saying, I think they had played like 73 minutes together. He and Tyrese and part of the issue too was Brogdon came back. They kept Buddy as the starter. Chris went to the bench, and a lot of their minutes weren't really crossing up with each other because of that. So now I really can fold in my other take into this because, you know, when Chris was out there and it was Buddy and and Tyrese, a lot of times Chris I like in the left side corner is really holding space for weak side taggers. Um, he's comfortable there. If you do need to flow into a secondary action, he's a little bit better going into handoffs, putting the ball down on the floor with his right and obviously likes to step back and sidestep to his left. So that's a good launch pad for him. But my question moving forward is in tandem with this is evaluating buddy healed as a starter. And I know that Lewis Zatzman over at 538, who I know wrote the piece about um, buddy as you know, a one dimensional shooting specialist and how that's changed with the Pacers and what, you know, his rim frequency is, is, way up over Sacramento his assist percentage is way up over what it was in Sacramento. And I agree with all the numbers. I think that some of the context, I'm not sure that I totally see. Um, he's obviously playing more minutes, which was referenced. Um, but like the main crux, I, did you read this story? I haven't. So okay. I, I so really like the, the, the main, yeah. Like, I yeah. I mean, I, it was good. And like I said, the, the numbers are the numbers and buddy has clearly done other things with the Pacers other than just shoot. But like the one sentence was healed is enjoying more space than ever before where Justin holiday is, is playing in cramped lineups. And then he kind of cross-referenced how buddy's being able to show more of his secondary skills because of what spacing the Pacers have now, whereas now Justin's in Sacramento and, and that's not showing up as well. He's not finishing as well on drives, not necessarily passing as much because people are straying in, in to passing lanes for Justin and it's like, I, I understand that line of thought, but you and I both know that when Justin and was still playing for the Pacers before this trade was made, the Pacers did not have spacing. 
Um, that's why Chris Paul was looking at their bench and saying they can't effing shoot. Um, teams were packing the paint and pulling over. So I don't necessarily think that that alone, like just swapping the rosters and now like, oh, Buddy's playing with more spacing and Justin's now in the cramped Sacramento setting. Justin was in a cramped setting with the Pacers. They ranked like near the bottom of the league in three-point percentage. And on the flip side with Buddy, like – if he's playing adjacent to Tyrese Halliburton, there's undeniably like more space. That defender isn't going to stun over towards Buddy. Um, we could even see that late against the Kings. I think that he ISOed Trey Lyles on a clear out and got right to the rim and nobody even came to help um, in the fourth quarter. So that stuff is there. It's just that I think that you would probably agree with me on this one, that outside of Tyrese, like they point out how many people on the Pacers roster currently since the trade are shooting like above 32% from three. But when you run down the list, it's like Chris, who's only played in a handful of games. And I don't know how many minutes actually with buddy and Jalen and Goga and Lance Stevenson. Like those aren't guys who are really commanding defensive attention. It's very good that they're making shots. But like, if you look at Jalen, a lot of times, like in the Washington game in particular, once Malcolm Brogdon was driving to the rim, like he was Jalen's defender was coming off. Like Malcolm at one point saw three defenders on one drive in the fourth quarter of that game. So I think that they're still seeing people straying into driving lanes. I would sooner point to what the change and scheme and system is because what the Pacers do offensively is they, they create, you know, like I said, all these boomerang actions, you come off an Iverson screen, the pass goes back to the other guard, and now you're attacking against a tilted defense. Plus, there's just not that as many ball handlers. Like when Buddy was in Sacramento, there was Tyrese, there was Davian Mitchell, there was De'Aaron Fox. Now that he's here, Brogdon's been in and out of the lineup. It's basically him and Tyrese in a lot of games. Um, so he's doing more in the pick and roll. His pick and roll frequency is up, and this is kind of getting to my long-winded point. But if you look on Synergy, um, his pick and roll frequency is at 18.8% compared to 15% in Sacramento. Um, his actual individual, uh, efficiency on those plays 0.746 point per possession compared to 0.78 with Sacramento is, is still about equal where the difference really comes into being is that the Pacers are scoring well off of his passes to this point in time. And he's now passing on 55% of those possessions compared to 44% with Sacramento. And I think some of that goes back to what I said with Terry earlier. He's playing with several bigs currently, if that's what you want to call Terry, who, if he draws two to the ball, are good at slipping out of those screens. He's good at throwing the overhead pass. And I think that there might just be something to say that when you're in the role that you wanted, he clearly wanted to be a starter. He's playing big minutes. He effectively has like a green light to take what shots he's going to take, that you then more may be a more willing passer because you have more opportunity to do so. He has more opportunity in the pick and roll. So his pass frequency is at 55% compared to 44% as what it was in Sacramento. So I understand some of the spacing issues, but my question being is, is how do you evaluate Buddy as a starter? Um, is some of this small sample size theater and what happens when you return Chris to the lineup, you return Brogdon to the lineup, you return TJ McConnell to the lineup, if he does slide back to the bench, is he still getting the same opportunity to do some of those things? And how does that shape your decision over the summer? Yeah, I, this is, these are all very great points. Um, I think we've just kind of seen the duality in Buddy Heald in a lot of ways. And I mean that, I'm, like, I think you and I are both 
a lot higher on him than general consensus just because of what he does as a shooter. I think, yeah. um, like you mentioned, I think his, his playmaking has been really, uh, I don't want to say quality like that. that I don't want to like just belittle it. Like, I think it's been fine. Um, but I think a lot of it, like the ball placement isn't awesome, but like he'll make the right reads, not super timely, but like if they're there, He's making it, and I think that counts. Like especially the Sacramento game to me, I thought was a really good passing game for him. But also, it was like okay, you see some of the flaws when he does have to pass, when he does handle the ball that much because he's not a great dribbler. Um, his his court vision isn't bad, but it's also not like to the level where you want him with that much. And I think it would be a lot more palatable if um, he's not taking some of the shots that he does. Like, yeah. but I think that's we're just at the stage too where the idea that you're going to make Buddy Heald somebody who's going to rein in his shooting. Um, like, he's 29. I, I don't think that's going to happen. And, I mean, part of that, like, part of that, too, that, that's just part of what makes Buddy Heald Buddy Heald. The audacity to take kind of any shot that is uh, that is possible, although you wish, you know, you could maybe get three or four of those shots back a game. But um, I do think, like, because we saw this in Sacramento, like, from watching Sacramento all this year, I mean, there were times where, it just felt like I, I hate throwing out the selfish player or whatever, but I mean, there were times in Sacramento where it literally looked like he would rather shoot over three guys than make a yeah. skip past the corner. That's wide open. So I, I, I mean, I'm there with you. I, I question what that looks like. If he has to move back to the bench next year, I mean, it's been reported for multiple years that he was not happy to be a to, to be off the bench. Um, and I think he's right to feel that way. He's well, he's right to feel that way. But I do question, you know, what that necessarily looks like for the Pacers next year, and especially too, like if they're not going to be a team that really looks to push in transition, because I do think that he brings a lot of value to as a transition threat. Um, I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what the direction is, um, and especially too with how, uh, you know, for a, I think for a team that hasn't done like a full scout on Buddy and what he's doing in Indiana. Maybe there's some way in which his uh, his trade value has gone up slightly or something like that. I don't love looking at it like that, but I do. Uh, I don't know. I think it's. I mean, probably... I mean, let's just be frank. There, there, there was a big part of me in addition to the fact that I do think of all the teammates, Tyrese probably has the best chemistry with Buddy, yeah. um, just because that they have history playing together, um, and that might have made made the transition more smooth, but I mean, I think that that was in part, I mean, I, I questioned that whenever he returned and he was starting and Duarte was coming off the bench. I mean, because, I mean, I think you would want to get, even though Duarte was still playing minutes, I think you would want to get Duarte experience against starters. But I did wonder like, is this in part to help Tyrese and because what buddy's capable of in terms of gravity or is some of it like, well, this could be, you know, a win-win because he does those things. And also if he plays well, then that gives us more options in the off season in terms of what you may be able to do if he shows that he can do this other stuff. I think that my main question is, is how scalable is him being more than a one-dimensional shooter if he is in a bench role and there are more ball handlers, like how he was playing around more ball handlers in Sacramento and how amenable is he going to be to that? Because like you're saying, both of us, I, I, I'm going to value his gravity regardless. And if he can turn the shooting back around and from a percentage standpoint, from where it's been in past seasons, then I think that there's a lot that comes with that. And I, I can see why the Pacers, you know, would want to have him and, and didn't flip him at the deadline. But if it turns out that, you know, he moves back 
to a bench roll and there's, you know, other guys are doing things and then he, it becomes more of what you saw then, then it becomes more questionable. And especially like, I mean, what would your reaction be if next season happens and he's, he's starting and Duarte isn't. That would be, I don't want to rewrite history or whatever, but I think I would just be even more uh, confused on the Duarte pick. We're being honest. Um, Yeah. And that's not meant to be unfair to Chris, but like if you're taking somebody like him in the lottery and they talk about him as somebody who can factor in and be an immediate impact, not that he's not going to be an immediate impact guy off the bench, but I think, I mean, he's shown himself capable of being a starter this year and not that he's not a valuable player off the bench, but I mean, if you're going to take that big of a swing when you finally get a lottery pick um, or not saying that it's the opposite of a big swing, like if you're going to, put your chips in on this guy because you believe in him as this guy. Okay. Then prove it and start him. Or maybe that's an unfair way of looking at it, but I just feel like it would be, um, it feels like a lot of short sightedness in um, if that's what happens is, is kind of where I'm coming at on it. Yeah. I think that's the best way to look at it. It's not because like I've, I've enjoyed what buddy has done for the most part. I mean, I know that we talked about him reining in what the shot selection was on the last start subset. I, I, I value spacing. I've talked about what he does as a screener and how that holds space on, on from the weak side, but um, it, it would feel a little bit short-sighted. And it just, it, I think it's going to be interesting to watch if what he's been doing to this point, um, again, is small sample size, how it continues to play out over these back eight against better opponents, and then what, how that impacts what decisions they might make over the summer. And, and I agree with you on the Duarte front. Um, I'd like to see him start playing more minutes with Tyrese Halliburton. So, um, and maybe that happens because if, if, if Malcolm doesn't um, play, then I guess you can still play all three of them like they were doing in the early going. And I didn't, I didn't mind uh, those early looks when they were playing Buddy and Tyrese and Duarte together. So um, I guess that's just something that I'm keeping an eye on. Yeah. No, that makes two of us. Well, Caitlin, I think this is uh, as good a place as any to close out now that we're through. Um, do you have anything else you want to get get out before we get out of here? Yes. So the other project that I referenced on the last pod has apparently been put on hold. However, I thought that there was one thing in particular that was very interesting about that Sacramento game. I really enjoy watching games that former teammates play against each other and some of the nuance that goes along with that. So for the last couple of days, I've been putting something together that I'm pretty excited about that people should be able to read over the weekend, assuming that I get it done and, and get it scheduled for publish. So um, that's something to look forward to. Well, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it. Everyone be sure that you go and read that because it's going to be well worth reading. Um, Again, if you haven't already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. Uh, drop any questions, comments, thoughts down below on IC or over on Twitter. And most importantly, have a good rest of your day. And thank you for listening.